Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I'm your host, Josiah, and I'm flying solo today. Uh, my co-host is not able to be on the show because this is maybe a slightly different type of podcast we're going to play around with where we highlight um, millennial authors. So in a moment, we're going to introduce you to our guest today. But before we do, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Today's guest is Stephanie. Stephanie, can you hear me? I can. Stephanie, can you tell us uh, tell us your, your, your full name, where you're at, and your current occupation, if you wouldn't mind? Yes, um, I'm Stephanie Lobdell, and I currently live in Mount Vernon, Ohio. Um, I've been here about four months, and I am now uh, the campus pastor at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. In a moment, we're going to talk about something you did. You're the author of a book called Signs of Life. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, one of the, the curious little niches we do with our podcast is establish millennial cred and deal oh, with, okay. deal with the millennial stereotype. Yes, please. Um, so before we do that though, we do need to ask, I know this is rude, but I'm sorry, it's part <laughs> of our stereotype. How old are you? Uh, 35. I was born in late 1984, August 84. So you were right in that you're, you're maybe at the earlier edge of the millennial stereotype. Yeah. And I'm an, I'm an, uh, an elderly millennial, you might say. <laughs> so they, they actually do call it older and younger millennials now. So that's, Thank a, you. that's yes. a thing. So um, you're, a, you're a couple years older than me and my co-host. So you, we're probably in the same older category millennial because, you know, you have children, right? Yes, I do. Seven and three. So not to give away some of our stereotypes, but you probably have your own house and you don't live in your grandmother's basement then, huh? We do not live in the grandparents' basement. No, false. We do not. Okay. So you're, you're adulting. Hashtag adulting. <laughs> Yes, we are. I even pay my bills. Wow. Well, then, shoot. You're ruining some of my stereotypical questions I'm already. Sorry. Before, before we get too far down the rabbit hole, uh, I wanna, I'm going to establish some, some millennial street cred. So we're going to play a game called How Millennial Are You? Okay. Are you ready to play? Yes. So we're a little pressed for time today, um, and we're doing a little bit different of a show. So I'm only going to ask you three questions. Okay. And they're very stereotypical, but we're going to rate it out of three to see just how stereotypically millennial you are. So these these are basically yes, no, but you can also unpack it more if you would like. Okay. All right. So since we already established that you have a job, we're not going to go down that route. We're going to go with uh, taste and preference. So question number one. Okay. Do you just love avocados? Um, Is it, does it count if I love guacamole? Uh, I mean, obviously, since it's a stereotype, any sort of slight bias, of course, it will count. So, okay, there you go. I appreciate a good mashed up avocado with some red onion and tomato and cilantro. So, I'm going to go with a, a yes. So, you're not putting it on toast, though? Not particularly. No, no. I like it on a good sandwich every now and again. Um, but I do love it mashed with a chip. There have been crazy amounts of headlines about how much money we spend annually as a generation. On avocados, that it's like That's, an is an economic it, driver. Okay, well, whatever part we can play to help the country. Apparently, do you do you spend a lot of money on avocados weekly? Uh, no, no, in fact, I do not. Okay, all right. Stereotypical question two. There's going to be so right now because we're biased and it's stereotypical. Of course, you're a millennial so far. One out of three. Question number two is going to be similar. It's going to be a taste preference thing, but it's going to be maybe more with money. Since millennials are bad with money, this is always an indictment against us. Do, oh do you spend more on coffee and we can do per week, per month, however you want to do that okay. than you do on retirement? 
No, I do not. You're an actual responsible millennial. I am. I do. I do not spend that much. Wow, that is a lot of. No, no, I do not. Well, here's the stereotype, so you can you can help us explain maybe how you don't Got fit it. it. Um, okay. We don't spend any on retirement, so anything we spend on coffee is obviously oh, more. Well, then obviously not. Okay, there you go. There you go. So just so we're clear, do you drink coffee? I do drink coffee. Um, I drink it at work, but I also drink it at home. And then um, we have a couple coffee shops in town. But none of the coffee shops that are close to me have a drive through oh. <laughs> So straight up, I am protected by the fact that Ooh. it's inconvenient for me to get coffee at the moment at a shop. So stereotypically, it would be up in the air if you had a drive through nearby. Oh, would... absolutely. Mm. Not even a question. When I lived in Idaho, we had a coffee shop that was just down the street. And yeah, it was a situation. Did you possibly push how much you bought coffee versus retirement savings? Was that a... still uh, still no, okay. still no, <laughs> but more than I maybe ought. Okay, so right now you're you're one for for one. So maybe this third question will be the real the real kicker, and it's kind of making okay. a, a resurgence. Is really curious because I don't know. Maybe maybe this isn't explicitly millennial, but I've heard it's very millennial, and it has a curious theological church bent. Um, do you use or sell essential oils? <laughs> I used lavender oil on my finger this morning because I burn it on a curling iron. <laughs> so you're a millennial. Okay. So, so let's, oh my goodness. The, your millennial cred though. Um, do you sell it? Are you like a seller of essential oils? I am not at one point I explored the possibility, um, mm. like seven years ago, I started buying them, but I didn't really push it. I just said, Hey, I sell this if you want it but I did not ever do anything with it. Now I just use them. So no, I did not construct an MLM empire <laughs> on essential oils. Oh I man. Didn't. You weren't monetizing friendships on Facebook. I was not monetizing friendships or parishioners for that matter. Oh. I chose not to go down that route. Thank you. Thank you for not uh, doing that. You are welcome. You, have you heard the uh, interesting biblical parallels to, Oh, well, this is basically like what they used in, in Jesus day. So of course, oh, it's like frankincense. I have actual frankincense. Yeah. I mean, what, holier oil is there come on seriously so to be i mean it's like the nazarene oil you, you it helps with entire <laughs> sanctification on top of everything else it helps with right yes oh my goodness okay so how do you feel about that stereotypically we're, we're doing a short expedited version sometimes we ask 10 questions sometimes we ask five oh my. sometimes we ask if they can decipher between real and fake headlines about millennials we're doing an expedited because <laughs> we want to focus on the next phase of this discussion, which is your book, but how do you yeah. feel about being, uh, you know, basically probably stereotypical two for three? Yeah. I'm, you know what? I'm okay with it. Every generation has pros and cons and it's just very interesting how demonized millennials are, but I own it and I uh, will live into my millennial identity and I will happily drink my LaCroix and <laughs> got guacamole, man. Get it. I'm proud. Get I'm it. Proud. Part of our, our tongue-in-cheek nature is that we don't like to uh, – labels are for things. Millennial, that term is a label, and it's to label a thing, but people have names. That's our little mantra we like to, to yeah. share a lot, and it's probably helpful for us to, to poke fun at, but truthfully kind of maybe reconstruct an imagination about this generational discourse that we have, particularly Absolutely. as it pertains to the church. And before we get to asking you some questions about the church and what – your, uh, your book kind of says about interesting uh, interactions you've had with the church as a pastor. Um, I want to dive deeper. You're, you're, uh, you're a chaplain at Mount Vernon. Um, so, 
so where where is your education from and what is your uh what is your past in ministry are you an ordained elder where, where are you yeah. at in this whole uh, nazarene uh yeah. clergy world yeah so i am actually a graduate of mid-america nazarene university that was my family school my um, aunts and uncles my parents went there um so i graduated from there in 07 um, with a degree in Christian education and Spanish and a minor in missions. Um, and right after that, my husband and I served overseas uh, for volunteer missions uh, as mission corps at the time um, in Italy for um, a little less than a year. Um, and then came back uh, for some health stuff with my mother-in-law, um, but also because I was just hungry, hungry, hungry for a seminary. I really wanted to go um, to go deeper. I mean, America offered me a really practical uh, degree, but I really needed to strengthen my biblical and theological studies. So headed uh, to Nazarene Theological Seminary, where um, I was a residential student. I mean, residential, I was still, I was 60 miles away because we were pastoring a rural church at the time, but was a residential student um, and loved my experience there. Um, got a master's of divinity, graduated in 2012. Um, Tommy and I, my husband and I uh, were ordained together as elders in 2011. So I got ordained before him. So after I or- got, was ordained, we were still kneeling at the bench. Dr. Porter said, all right, you're an ordained elder. Now you better lay your hands on him. <laughs> and so that was like super special. Um, love that. That's super cool. Yeah, it was. So, um, we, I had originally, my imagination was very much, you know, cross-cultural ministry was going to be our path. And we did that for that year and came back to do our education. Um, during that time, several things, uh, just kind of changed. Um, the economy, the economy kind of collapsed a little bit. It was a great recession stuff started. Um, so not very many missionaries were being sent and our imagination was really being reshaped into, um, just a shepherding, um, ministry, just uh, what it means to be a shepherd in a parish, um, and I did never foresaw myself in rural Missouri for sure, um, which was where we were for six years. Um, and we actually co-pastored there for six years. So we shared the office of lead pastor. Um, and then after that, we moved to Idaho where we were co-lead pastors again for four and a half years. Um, and that was some, some really good days, some really fruitful times in our life and in our ministry. Um, but we were beginning to feel the sense of um, we had no desire to leave Idaho at all. We deeply, deeply loved um, that congregation. But we were beginning to feel a little bit of a sense that perhaps um, that co-pastoring wasn't going to be the long-term route for us, that maybe there were some ways that we could grow um, in our ministry and as individuals if we were allowed to flourish in our own pots, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so um, I wasn't pursuing this particular opportunity at Mount Vernon. I didn't even know they needed to, they were in search of a chaplain. Um, but someone that was connected to the university reached out to me and asked if I would be willing to submit my CV. And so I did. Even a, a Much fear and trepidation. I didn't even really want to. I felt very there are a whole lot of imposter syndrome. Like I am not, I don't have the capacity for this. This is far beyond my skill. All the, all of those doubts. Um, but my husband um, very much said, Stephanie, you love education. You love thinking, you love learning. You have high energy. You're an ex, you're an extrovert. Like, I think you might thrive in this environment. I think you need to just explore it. Like just don't shut the door. Um, and so just because of really, because of his kind of prodding, um, I stuck it out through an extremely, extremely long process of, of waiting. Um, but then the internship, the interview process and whatever else, and, um, actually accepted the position. It was announced in April. So I got asked for my CV in September of 2018. I accepted and the position was announced in April of 2019. So it was such a long road, but, um, the Lord had his hand on all of that. Did some real transformative soul work in me, um, in those intervening months. Um, and I think was doing a work here on this campus as well. And so my first day um, in the office was July 8th, which is insane because students start moving in like the first week of August. <laughs> so um, I had to, like all the people in this office had resigned and had decided to move on, which happens after a long tenure sometimes. Um, 
And so I had not only to learn this job, I had to fill a chapel schedule. We have a chapel three times a week. I had to fill it front to back and I had to hire all of my staff. Wow. It was wild, but um, the Lord was so faithful. And so now I've been here uh, four months. I have not quit. Um, the community <laughs> has been incredibly supportive and patient and generous with me um, just with their time and their information. Um, and so I think this is a place where I can put down roots and really uh, give my life to something meaningful. That's awesome. So it's it's kind of a shift though from from uh, parish ministry to Ooh, collegiate yep. ministry. Yes, because you're very- you're kind of like the campus pastor, maybe, or oh, I mean, how would you describe yeah. that? They changed the title from chaplain to campus pastor very intentionally. They want it to, to really emphasize that this is shepherding role, a pastoral office, um, not an administrative um, kind of distant kind of. The idea of chaplaincy is that your community is um, always transient and you're a bit kind of um, apart from that in some ways. And that may or may not be true, but that's just some of the connotations I think that um, at least this community had associated with that. And they really wanted to lean into the pastoral aspect of this role, um, which was very much in line with, I think, who God has gifted me to be. Um, And so that was the title shift this year to campus pastor. So I oversee all uh, the Office of Campus Ministries um, and for the faculty and for the students, but I mean, primarily faculty, primarily students, faculty is, we're still kind of exploring what that looks like, but. That's curious. Cause in, in these times, I mean, I remember I was, a, I'm an alumni of Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego, where uh-huh. I'll tell you, studying theology while you live on the beach is kind of hard to do sometimes. No for, first world pains though. Right. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a formative time, uh, especially for future clergy. Um, you have a, a school of theology at that campus of some sort, right, where you can get a degree to become a pastor. We do. And uh, there's this curious discussion going on, I think, from the top down in our denomination of the uh, top-heavy clergy that we have. The, the largest group age-wise in our denomination of clergy, of pastors, is over 65 um, which is part of what we're talking about on this podcast regularly. And I think it's really curious what your book touches on um, because yeah. it's not easy for a young pastor, especially a young pastor who's a woman. Even if you are a co-pastor, there's obviously some slights against you because you're female and you talk about your stature and all these interesting things that are very curious. But um, in a spot like this, how much do you think you have to say or how much formational input do you have on these students to help them define uh, a question I will ask you, but I think needs to be asked regularly is just what church is and what part we have to play in it. Yeah. And that is interesting because chapel is not church. No. I mean, it is church in the sense that we do have a time of corporate worship. Um, and oftentimes, I mean, probably more often than not right now, because of just who I am and coming into this role at the time that I did, that most of the time the speakers do do some kind of sermon sometimes topical, sometimes exegetical, sometimes just uh, speaking on a topic, but, but I do not equate it with church. So that is different. Um, so I don't necessarily view my, my, that's, this is where there's a little bit of a, one of the major shifts is that this is not forming this distinct body of Christ as you would in a parish setting. There's a lot of my students who are either, um, who would say they're agnostic or who, who don't profess any faith at all. Some of them are, are atheistic, but most of them are, um, who don't affirm a Christian faith would probably say more agnostic than atheist, I think. But um, so this isn't necessarily a place where everyone is 100% all on board believer. We're all on the same page. That's not that's just not the, that's not the reality. Um, and so really, my role is to is to say, you know, we 
as a Christian community, this is who we've identified ourselves to be. And you, you've chosen to be a part of that is that we participate in these corporate disciplines of spiritual formation. Um, and so that's really the language that I've been leaning into of spiritual formation. Um, we've moved away from this whole chapel credit uh, language to spiritual formation credit. We really want to affirm this, the corporate worship aspect, but also discipleship as well as service. Now, those things were already in place when I came, but we just weren't naming that well under that umbrella. And so we're trying to just name what's already happening here in terms of a holistic spiritual formation. And our goal, of course, is to get them plugged into a local body of believers. We do some intentional things, especially at the beginning of the year to make that happen. Um, and it may or may not, but from my perspective, my goal is, is to um, help them to think deeply about their faith, to cultivate a spiritual humility, um, and openness, um, and to allow the Lord to, um, to just really dethrone self from their heart, um, and allow the Lord to, to lead, um, in this extremely formative time in their life. So maybe a question instead of you defining what the church is, but if you had a student come and say, why should I be a part of the church? What would you, what would you say to them? Well, I would say that is how God has chosen to um, be present in this world. Um, surely, you know, God is present in all of creation, but in the distinct way, the spirit has fallen upon the people of God. And when we are part of a corporate uh, body of believers, um, we enter into God's chosen uh, method of of the inbranking kingdom in the world. Um, so we are part of the church because we are joining God in God's mission of redemption, um, but also because we are shaped by that community. We are reminded that we are part of something that is far bigger than ourselves. Um, and we are challenged to serve and love one another um, as Christ has taught us to do that um, in order that we might bear nourishing fruit for the world. So this is the, this is the slight, this is why maybe we, we sort of touch on the millennial stereotype, but we as a generation might be, and there's not a whole lot of really concrete evidence, but just piecing together things from Barna and Pew Research and just looking at our own congregations, um, we might be the first generation where a majority of us left faith communities, maybe not necessarily the faith, but traditional churches. Um, yep. So uh, my question would be, why are you still a part of it? And have you ever been tempted to leave it? Even though you're you know, now in a, a yeah. chaplaincy thing and encouraging students to go, have you been yep. tempted yourself to leave? Yeah. Yeah. There have been, there have been days. Um, I do remember a moment in my undergrad career. I think I can't remember who the, what the speaker was at the time or anything of that nature, but I do remember people talking about wanting to plant churches because, you know, we can get rid of all of these like toxic habits that churches have and create our new church plants that don't have any of those things, which is such a, like a lie, but still at the time it was very, you know, on trend to say that kind of thing. I'm going to plant a church and we're going to, not have any of this baggage that these established churches have. Um, and there's truth to that, but people are people no matter what kind of church you're in. Um, but I remember thinking very distinctly at that time, I don't feel like, I don't feel like the Lord has called me to simply rip apart what we have. I feel like the Lord has called me to speak truth um, into the system, into the structure that we have. Um, and times that that is been, been exhausting and that has been tiresome. And sometimes I felt cynical, um, but when the church has invited me to contribute, whether it be to serve as a pastor or to write or to contribute to literature, um, I'm going to say yes, because this is, I don't feel like I can stand in a position of cynicism or crit or critique if I don't have skin in the game. Yeah. If I am not actively contributing to the conversation in edifying, um, in edifying ways, helping us move forward as a, as a church. So, um, but there's certainly been moments I'm, when we were at, um, in our very first assignment, our very first, where we worked for six and a half years or six years, um, 
there were times, um, my husband in particular, I think we went back and forth between who was deeper in despair than the other. Who would take turns. Like he was deep in despair. I'm like, no, we can do it. Come on, hang on. Let's not quit. And then I'd be like, oh my word, everything is on fire. And he's like, no, we can't quit. It's okay. You know? And so there we, that's how we made it six years, frankly. Um, but there was a time when things were, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, when things were just very, very broken and we were really paying a price emotionally, even physically, um, relationally, um, it was causing some real damage. And, um, and I feel like we were we were edging pretty close um, to being needing a season of complete separation um, from the church because the the church you not even the church you imagine I'm not even talking about some like perfect like pure and spotless church I'm talking about just a community that loves and supports and speaks truth I felt like we didn't even have um, access to that at that particular season and remember feeling like I'm not sure how much longer I can do this and still function as a human being. Um, My anxiety was out of control. Um, It was causing just physical damage. Like I was having like really um, some digestive issues and um, just living in fear most of the time. We had a young child at the time. And just how do I not transfer um, these really painful um, experiences that we're going through um, to my child? And how do I make our our home even a safe place when I don't feel safe? and it was in those moments where I was certainly like, okay, I don't know what's next, but this ain't it. Like we have got <laughs> to make a change. And thankfully we had such a godly, um, helpful leader, um, at DS at the time who really gave us permission. And then the Lord confirmed that through scripture and everything else that, that it was truly time to release that congregation. Um, and I think they've moved in some healthy ways. I'm that was continually my prayer for them. Um, but, um, but certainly, needed per, you know in a sense I needed that permission to say you have you have done good and faithful work and it's okay to release that um and that enabled us to open up our imagination to what was next and we were swear to you we were like no one is gonna hire us like we have obviously done terrible here we are just trash like we better I gotta pick up like needlework I don't know like I don't know how we're gonna pay the bills here um and the Lord was so kind and brought us to a new congregation that literally saved in a lot of ways, our vocational life, um, by loving us and by faithfully serving alongside us, um, and giving space to us, um, and just loving us so very well and generously. Um, and that restored, I think a lot of my own soul, um, and hope in the, in who the church could be. So we generally ask questions as well of our guests of what they love most about the church and what they think needs fixing, but you kind of answer that already in ways in your book that I think would be much more productive of our time to just to segue right into. Um, Your book is is so curious because on the surface, I think you could see um, there's some stuff you talk about that maybe has not been talked about uh, as openly by pastors um, in years past. Um, Have you, have you gotten some response from the church (laughs) at large that, wow, she's pretty open about, you know, issues of mental health and feeling despair or depression or having anxiety. What has there been a general sense of, oh, I don't know how to take that or what, what has been the reaction to that? I will say first and foremost, the vast majority of feedback I have received concerning my vulnerability and transparency about my own mental health journey has been positive um, because um, they have, or someone they know, or their child has experienced that pain and they have felt seen for the very first time. So above and beyond any critique I've had, I have had the majority of people say, I don't, I don't know why or how you did that, but thank you because I felt seen or my daughter feels seen, or we now have this language with handles um, to lay hold of 
to get us through to the other side of facing their own mental health crisis or that of people that they love. There was a time where um, a denominational um, leader um, took me aside. I had written, this was prior to my book being published. I don't, I can't even remember timeline wise if I had a book deal yet. Um, I can't even remember, but no, I did. Did I? Yes. I think I was in the middle of writing it actually. Uh, but I had written this blog post. I had put, been put on some bad meds and, um, and it put me in a really bad state within just a, like 24 hours. I mean, to significant ideation, um, just despair. It was a very, it was the wrong drug for the wrong thing. With mental health is that it's not a super easy fix. Like here, take this pill, magically fix. Sometimes it's the not the right pit, uh, pill for your body. So anyway, took this real weird turn. And during that time, I decided to write how it felt while I was in it versus reflecting on it later. So I wrote this, this reflection and then I let it sit. And then once I was back, like on the right stuff and I had gone through some treatment and I was thinking clearly again, I went back to that piece and I edited a little bit and it was really, um, my version of a lament Psalm in some way, it was really like a lament Psalm similar to Psalm 88 in that it doesn't really resolve. Um, the problem is not solved, but I am extending my hand saying, come Lord Jesus and bring a flashlight. That's like the concluding line of my statement. And, um, this, and I posted that this is a, this was the trick is that I posted a picture of myself during that time. And it was just, I look very sick. Um, my eyes are red. My skin is very pale. And I included a picture, not because I'm some weird narcissist, because I wanted people to understand <laughs> that depression is not this like romantic foray into sadness that, oh, wow, you can feel sad for a while and be inspired and write good things. Like, that's so lame. Like, if I could somehow wish away my depression, um, well, I don't know if I would wish it away now. I've come a long way on it, but in that, in that whole thing, but. The point of being, this is not a great experience. This is not something that, oh, yay, I'm going into a depressive state. Thanks be to God. Like, that is not the reality. And so I posted a picture because I wanted people to understand this was real and you need to know that. So anyway, a denominational leader takes me out months, months later, and I thought it was to check in on me, make sure I was okay. And instead, this person says to me, first of all, first thing out of their mouth is, does your husband read what you write before you publish it? <coughs> And I was like, oh, this was, this is going to take a turn real quick. This is going to take a turn real quick. As if, as in your husband needs to approve what you're posting, basically. That's how it felt. But it was really, um, yeah. So we talked about that and I was like, well, sometimes, um, if he feels like it, you know, like I, I wasn't going to even engage that. Um, but he was very distraught. Someone had come to this leader and said, you have a very, there's a very angry pastor out there and she is posting this stuff and it is not not appropriate and she is going to do damage and basically fix this pastor. And I was like, well, who's this person? And they wouldn't disclose it. So there's an anonymous critique about how I was an angry pastor setting this bad example, contrary to our, you know, message of holiness and hope and la, 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 la. And so we had this dialogue about that. And I would, there's so many things I look back and I wish I would have said in that moment that I didn't. Um, but basically I said, this was my experience. And if you've read the piece, you see that, what I'm describing is I'm describing symptoms, like my despair and my frustration and my hurt and how that manifested as anger, which is really the, that is the surface emotion that is easier to face versus like the deepest despair that one is capable of. Um, but I said, if you look at the end, I, I look to Jesus for hope. I'm waiting for Jesus to come and deliver me. And so at the end of the conversation, the individual said, okay, now that we've had this conversation, I've, I've asked you, you, will you count the cost, count the cost when you publish this kind of thing? Would you change, would you change what you wrote? 
would you take down that picture? And I said, no, so, no, I will not. And I would do it again a thousand times, um, and which was maybe a sassy thing for me to say. And I understand that. <laughs> but I had received messages from women, several women who said, I um, didn't think I thought I was disqualified because of my you know, history with mental health. And I just started the course of study. So thank you. And how am I going to take that back? I'm not going to take yeah, that seriously. back. If for one moment, being honest about what hurts allows for someone else to imagine themselves serving the kingdom, then I will say it every day, all day long, um, even though it was costly. So that was, a, that was the one real critique I received. Other than that, people are either too scared to tell me because I'm sassy or they, um, <laughs> they felt heard and seen. So here we are. So there's there's maybe a speculative question I would be curious to ask you, especially since you've div- you dove deep, you've written a lot about this stuff, you've experienced a lot of it, you're obviously read up on it, researched on it. Do you think there's a history in in church at large, church Catholic, not just Nazarenedom that we live in, of just pretending mental health issues aren't yes. there, or just praying harder, or just brush it under the oh, rug? Absolutely, and I can testify to that. Um, my my own um, struggles with mental health, it's not something that popped out <clears throat> um, randomly. It's a part of my family's biological history. And there are people in my family, mm. um, older generations, who have been told, um, if you would just confess whatever sin you're <coughs> holding on to, God would heal you. Like, if you were truly faithful, <laughs> God would heal you. Uh, and, um, that makes so, me so mad. My mom had uh, the same thing told to her. And she had like three miscarriages back to back to back. And they basically said, sorry, you're just obviously sinning in some way. You haven't yes. asked for forgiveness yes. for it. So it's this narrative that we cannot reconcile um, our hurt and God, the persistence of painful things with a good God. So one of the questions I ask very explicitly in the book is I say, the question that we find ourselves asking is that Jesus has won the victory. Why am I so sad? And mm-hmm. so we feel well, yeah. like if we don't have an answer for that, we cannot live in this tension of unresolved hurt and suffering with a good and holy God. So if we have truly are obeying, then we automatically should be experiencing blessing manifest in a specific way. And that's simply false. And scripture would 100% perpetuate that, that, that story that suffering does not mean sin and holiness does not mean freedom from well, Jesus suffered, so that's pretty simple. I mean, right I there. Um, but but there's, there's the prosperity gospel yeah. um, that I think perpetuates some of that. Life will be roses and you'll be rich if you do the things that I tell yeah. you to do. Um, but you take it to the next level. And this is what I'm really curious to ask you about and talk to you about. As a pastor, um, there's maybe this pressure to just be good, to be all right, to be the best, to be the whatever but you specifically talk about how that did not happen. You talk maybe a little bit in, in, I don't know if you necessarily come right out and say this all the time when you're writing about it, but maybe there's an imposter syndrome, a fear. Um, there's these things where you just are, are worried because it seems like at some point you write about it and, and you don't specifically, you don't give all the dirty details, but you touch on some things. There's almost like a flat out coup in one yeah. of the churches you pastored where there was a full on coup <laughs> to, to, to address the issues at hand and the issues at hand were you and your yes. husband, right? Like that. The, so what is the issue? Oh, that you're here and you're yeah. our pastors and we don't like this, that or the other or whatever, whatever they really would have said. Um, however, that's not, that's just not a fun thing to deal with. 
And I'm curious, um, at that time, and I, maybe, maybe I missed this in your book, um, what were you doing to deal with that mentally, uh, emotionally, spiritually? What were you doing when, because you, you write in your book, and this, I, can, I can empathize with this. I lived in a parsonage too. You were in your house, and you could see the meeting after the meeting, yep. I think you called it. Where, where there were people in the parking lot who were, they just, they, they spent all this time preparing this, this passive aggressive, but very aggressive, not even letting your husband participate because your co-pastors meeting that they weren't even technically allowed to schedule because of our polity, where they just like rake you over the coals. But then after the meeting's over, they go and have their other follow-up meeting and you get to see it from your parsonage because you live right next yep. door. Like in this season of your life, were you maybe taking the best care of yourself mentally, emotionally with therapy, with medicines? Like, what were you doing in that time to deal with some of those church hurts that you were facing? Yeah, um, I was on medication at the time. I was receiving um, just the care of, um, of a doctor for my mental health. And at that time, that was medication. That's not the case anymore. I've um, switched to a different kind of treatment. But at the time, I did I was receiving mental health care um, through my doctor. Um, and I had gone through um, a couple of years, really solid, of counseling at that point, um, giving me some CBT, like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, just really give me some tools um, to manage um, just the manifestations um, of my mental health, um, the depression and the anxiety and stuff. So at the time when that all broke loose, that things got really, really difficult in that particular congregation. Um, I was doing the best I could in terms of my mental health, um, but it really felt like a, um, a crisis mode. It, this wasn't a, per, like depression for me has been like a heavy dragging weight. This did not feel like that. This felt like everything was on fire. And so it made me mm. feel um, a deep, like all consuming anxiety. Um, I was, I was physically ill. Um, my stomach was upset almost all of the time. Um, there were times where I could not focus on anything else, but what was happening at hand. And I would just ruminate and ruminate and ruminate over conversations. And I should have said this, or I should have said that. And it became so all consuming that there were times where, um, <laughs> we would just leave town. It was a small town. And uh, we were just very visible. And so at the end of the day, or sometimes we'd even leave early, um, try to get our work done and, and leave early. And um, I write about that a little bit in my book. One of the days we left was our daughter's birthday. And I was like, we, we're going to go somewhere else. We're going to go somewhere where we can separate um, from, from this chaos and from this hurt um, because we did not feel safe. And so um, we would leave town uh, for periods of time um, to go see family that were an hour away or that kind of thing. And that was helpful and that was soul restoring. Um, but the drive home was always hard. And it didn't start that way. I think in this, the, the particular chapter where you maybe unpack some of the story, you, you near the beginning talk about you were a typical young pastor who had all this optimism yep. and you're so excited about doing this and doing the work, um, understanding what the church was and what you were supposed to be as a good pastor uh, and, and you had, what would you have called it rose colored goggles at that point? Or, I mean, what do you think, yeah. what do you think it is that pastors come into these circumstances? Are they just not prepared enough to grapple with it? Or is it, uh, I mean, from start to finish, there's, there's, there's a journey there, obviously. Yeah. But were you prepared to face that? Um, I would grow up a pastor's kid and my parents were very, very, very healthy pastors, meaning they didn't even when they had extremely difficult church conflict, they did not expose me to that. They did not talk about that around me. And so even though there was a lot, there was church hurt in their own vocational journey, um, I was not 
bitter or cynical or, or angry. Um, I knew there were hurts and there were problems, but what I saw on my side was I saw my past, my parents, um, being faithful. I saw them continuing Mm. to show up and love and persist in reconciliation in the midst of some really awful things. And so that's what I saw. So I knew that the the church was hard. I knew that we were going to face conflict. Um, I don't think I was fully prepared for, um, how personal it would feel. Uh, I knew it would be hard, but I think in my mind, you know, when you think about something, you know, just when you're just thinking about something, you don't have the emotion attached to that. Like you think, oh, there's just this conflict and, oh, here's a way path, way forward to reconciliation. We can, we can work this out. But when everyone's like heart is on the line or on the table and all of your emotions and you've poured every single bit of your soul into, into a church and into a people, and, um, and that, that pouring out of oneself has been, um, in some ways not taken advantage of, but has, um, they've done damage to you in the midst of your vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to say that we did all the things right. Cause we most certainly did not. There were so many missteps on our part. Um, but we gave everything that we could and the best way that we could, um, even imperfectly. And there were many times where we had to go and make things right and apologize and ask for forgiveness and do those things. But I had no idea how badly it would hurt and how deeply I would feel betrayed when things went south. Um, I did not fully appreciate the measure of that hurt. And before you started, did you have kids before you started at this no, church? No, we had kids while we were and- there. So you're, you're, you're growing a family. So you're even more invested. You have even more skin in the game. So as you're talking about this, you put everything into it. You're not just putting everything about yourself into it, but this is your family's livelihood. This is your family life. You live next door. This is, this is everything in your life. It is. It absolutely is. Um, I mean, yeah. And that's another thing when your kid comes to the table, you know, when we bite our, you know, our baby, she was toddler at that point. Um, there was a new sense of vulnerability that says, um, if I don't get in line or if I don't do these particular things. And at that point, I'm not sure there was anything I could have done to get in line and would have reconciled some of those broken pieces. But, um, it's certainly having my daughter now, having our daughter at that point made you feel so vulnerable because now I could be at a job and I'm, you know, they fire me. I'm at a house. Like how, how long yeah. do I have to get out? Like that's the fear that you live in for a long time. And, um, and I want to emphasize that I just, I want to make sure this is clear that I don't, I'm not trying to paint myself as somebody that did all the right things because I, we didn't, um, but we gave it everything that we had and sought reconciliation and forgiveness all the time. Um, and yet I don't think that justifies, um, the hurt that we experienced. So I'm curious, cause you, you, you say you own some of the, yeah, I mean, you are a brand new pastor. This is your first church, yeah. right? So this is your first church. There's there's a reasonable level of they need to learn, yeah. right? There yes. needs to be support to help a pastor learn. I'm in my first pastorate. I've been here just about four years. And and I try to use phrases like, I didn't know that I didn't know yes. that. Or yes. I'm I'm still I'm still learning. Um, but there's other times too where you have to balance, well, I know I'm still learning, but I'm pretty sure this is what we should do. So you need to trust my leadership. And there's kind of a balance there. But I think what's curious. And this is the thing that I find most, uh, I, I don't know, profound about what you wrote. The thing that is that I'm still mentally chewing on it. You kind of have this, this question, this undercurrent question that I see. Maybe it's not, maybe you weren't, I don't know. Th- th- this is just my two cents. You ask the question, does the resurrection still 
is there the resurrection is it still important today is it just the get it get out of jail free card you talked about it a little earlier in, in this discussion about if jesus died for my sins and gave me this gift why am i not happy yes. um so this question of just resurrection and what what being a child of god has to do with in your book i'm going to read a quote because i'm curious i would love to hear a little more of your thought process behind what you wrote this for you this is you kind of owning your own I'm a young pastor. I, I had rose colored goggles. Maybe I didn't know what I didn't know, but you basically said my, and this is in uh, chapter six and I have like an advanced copy. So I don't know what page it would be on, but um, it says my, my idolatrous co-opting of the promise of revival had to die and the call to come and die had to be revived within me. And so you have this language of revival versus resurrection. Yeah. So I'm curious um, what was, what was your, what was the promise of revival? Like what did revival have to look like practically for you? And then what, what was it that had to die yeah. about that? Well, you know, I say, I highlight this a little bit in the book that, that we had, we gave our full selves to that congregation as best we knew how, um, my husband, um, I served as a substitute teacher. My husband coached uh, local basketball. We did an after-school program on uh, Wednesdays. I gave him snacks and activities and we did everything that everyone says you're supposed to do to invest in your community. We, um, and all, all the books and all the things, you know, and we would meet for a whole year. Every Friday morning, we meet at 6 a.m. And we would just walk circles around our church and our congregation. We would pray for the town and pray for our church. And, you know, we would just cover it in the blanket of prayer and all of the things that all of these methods that are supposed to revive a church. Right. We invested a huge amount of time into our young people. And actually, that really blossomed and thrived. But because they were not from church families, we didn't ha they didn't translate into the Sunday morning worship very well. And a lot of these um, some of the families that were unkind to us were like, well, they're not givers. They're not participating. They're not. This doesn't really count, which was really hard for us because we were seeing these students coming to know Jesus. Um, but it wasn't at Sunday morning because they didn't feel welcome there. That wasn't a place they felt that would work for them. Anyway, so we're doing all the things that we thought we were supposed to do. And I think in my mind, revival meant these broken relationships were going to be restored, that we would become this like hub of God's activity here in this County, that our numbers would increase, that we would, you know, fill these people. We had a beautiful facility because they'd actually had a terrible fire and we had a beautiful facility and um, that God had just blessed them with and had very low debt and I just to see this could be filled up, man. This is people come, come to Jesus. And I think I realized along the way, and maybe probably afterwards looking back, um, that there were, and I do say in this book, that there were, there were signs of resurrection of people being transformed by the, the, you know, the grace of God. But I think my ideas of revival in some sense, while I certainly wanted those things to happen and I wanted radical change and I wanted this church to blossom and to flourish and to really be a source of, 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 of saving grace to the community. I think my ego was playing in the game as well. I think my, my hmm. ego wanted to be like, have the, the flashiest district assembly report. Like, my go with metrics. Yes. Because metrics is metric. You know, people, you know, it's not about the numbers, but every person is a number. You know, we, there's all these things that we <laughs> say, like every number is an actual soul. I know that. And so you have this like guilt <laughs> of like, I'm failing and I'm clearly failing the kingdom. But then your ego gets wrapped up in that because you also want to be the cash <clears throat> that's doing good and, and meaningful work. And so it's this whole blend of, of external pressures of these particular metrics that we, that we require of pastors and churches. 
And unfortunately, I don't have the magical answer to say what a more appropriate metric is, but um, that I don't think that is it. But anyway, um, we have this external pressure of, of these metrics. Plus, I have my own my own stuff inside that I'm wrestling with, my own personal development, my own um, ego that is really rising to the surface in this. Um, all of those coming into play and realizing this um, this image I had of revival had really become um, idolatrous, had really become a stumbling block, had really become something that was causing me um, not only distress, like I'm failing at this, but also. Um, I think I was losing sight of the the resurrection that God truly was doing in individuals in that congregation. And I saw those things, but in some sense it was like, well, that's cool. But why are my, why are my views filled? You know, um, but the, but the numbers, but the, the numbers, numbers that I have to God, report on my annual care? pastoral report. Lord, do you know that a number is a soul? Do you know? Um, uh, and so, uh, um, and so I, I did not adequately give thanks for the resurrection that I was getting to participate in um, because I was so beholden to what I thought what this revival was supposed to look like. Um, Interesting. And then you say that there's this call to come and die. And then you do talk because after that paragraph, you talk about looking back at your parish with more faithful lenses and seeing where the revival, where there were, as your book would call it, signs of life, where there was resurrection, where there was, um, that, you know, God's work was very clearly, uh, there and your work wasn't fruitless. I, cause I'm sure you, some of what you're talking about is like feeling like, oh, I am a failure. Oh, absolutely. That's um, how I feel. <laughs> so the call to come and die, what, what does that mean in a practical sense for, for a young pastor? Mm-hmm. It's, so you're, you're a youngerish pastor <laughs> still, but there's pastors younger absolutely. than you. So what, what, what does it look like to coach young pastors that are stepping into this with maybe the optimism you had at first? to give them not too much reality right up front to kill that passion, but to say, this is what it looks like to call, to be, um, to follow the call to come and die. I think the first thing I would say to the young pastor, and I think I would say it to myself, even way back then, even though I'm not sure my young self would have, would have been able to hear it because I'm not sure my self-awareness was quite there yet. I would say the first thing of the call to come and die is ego. Um, is we got to get our ego out of this conversation. Um, this, I'm going to be the, the, the coolest pastor. I'm going to, I'm going to have the most, the flashiest show. I'm going to have the most, uh, you know, amazing metrics. Or if you're on the other side, I'm going to have the most liturgical service ever. And no one will ever be able to shake <laughs> a stick at my liturgy. Like that's ego too. So calm down. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the best exegesis oh ever. Word, the best this. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say we have to be honest about our ego and how, um, our performance and the way things are measured, um, how our ego truly speaks into that and can really lead us astray from the path of faithfulness. Cause the path of faithfulness, it's, you know, it's the Eugene Peterson, it's the long obedience in the same direction. It is yeah, the, in the same direction. Obedience. Yeah. Um, it is not, you know, there are, you surely there are the, the pop-up churches that just have a gazillion people and thanks be to God for that. And I hope they're doing good work, but that's not most people's story. And like, there are truly good faithful things happening in small places and in small ways. And who am I to discount the work of God because it doesn't look the way I think it should. Um, and so mm. for me, I would have said to my younger self and would say to others is, is check your ego, do the ego work, um, do the really hard work of, of looking into yourself and allowing people to speak truth into you. Um, I think sometimes the pastorate really attracts um, certain personalities sometimes and I might be treading on some thin ice here um, some personalities <laughs> that um, tend to to love the spotlight can 
even some arrogance and some narcissism. And I say that because it's true of me. Um, it's true of mm-hmm. me. Um, and only through by God's grace is the Lord continuing to unveil those, those, those sinful patterns that really are wound management skills, right? Uh, they're yeah. wound management skills. Um, and so the, we are just so vulnerable to that because we're up in front of people all the time. We're in this public thing. And so we got to get our ego out of the conversation and allow ourselves to be faithful, even when it's not showy, even when it's unseen, even when it's slow. Hmm. Even when it's not trending yeah. on, on when social you don't media. Have your own <laughs> when you don't have your own hashtag. So, so as we wrap up this discussion, I'm just curious, we like to try to end on, on a optimistic yeah. note. Um, we heard in your book, in your, your discussion, the church needs some fixing, but there are things that there, there's plenty left to love about church at large and ministry at large. So I'm curious, one final question, one final thought. What is the thing you're most excited about, the signs of life you see most prevalent within the church uh, in this country today, here and now? There's so much that we can get um, upset and concerned and sad about, but what's the signs of life that you're most excited about right yeah. now? Well, I'm in a really unique position now in serving in a, in a college, on a college campus. And so I get to <clears throat> be up close and personal with, with this rising generation. It's not even millennials anymore. Now we're into the Gen Zs, right? Gen Z, um, yikes. That's the next podcast. Um, but um, yep. what I'm seeing in them is a developing, and not in all of them, but in many of them, a, a deep empathy and compassion and a desire um, to make space at the table for all people that you don't have to, uh, the whole, you know, to use the language that a lot of people are familiar with, but you don't have to believe the right thing and behave the right way in order to belong first, like come and belong at this table and be shaped by this Christian ethic. And maybe in that process, come to know and understand Jesus as Lord. And so I am seeing that in pockets in flashes in, in, in our students. And we are using, using that particular model within our um, discipleship um, here through campus ministries, but I'm seeing students with a heart for inclusion and for, um, and for love and for compassion and mercy versus the, if you just prayed hard enough, you'd be better. You know, yeah. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a deeper compassion there. And then there's, you know, we can talk about the pendulum and how it can go all the other way, but I just want to give thanks for that. I want to give thanks for the compassion, yeah. for the mercy and for uh, the commitment to service that I see in the hearts of um, young or emerging adults. Well, the book is called Signs of Life. Stephanie Lobdell, thank you for being on the podcast. It's available pretty much everywhere. You can buy a book. Yeah, correct? audiobook, uh, digital, like Kindle, and paperback and hardback. So all the things. We're going to probably link, uh, since this is the path of least resistance, the Amazon link. But you can find it everywhere. You can buy books. I'm sure you can find it in your local Barnes & Noble. Um, they should be able to get it to you as well if that's the way you want to. If you if you want the analog version yes. of the book, I'm <laughs> sure I'm sure bookstores will get it. But if you're if you're a stereotypical millennial, we'll have a link for either Kindle or or the actual book to be shipped right to your door because we love there it. There you go. But Stephanie, thanks yes. so much for being on Thank the podcast. You, Josiah. It's been so great. Really appreciate uh, your work that we're doing and that you would take time to share with our listeners and with us what Absolutely. you're doing. Uh, and we, we just appreciate it. So to our listeners, don't forget, find that link in the description. You can find it on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, comment. But if you want to hear more about what millennials think or you like hearing about the faith, faith-based work they're doing in culture like Stephanie writing a book, then please join us next time on the Millennial Pastor Podcast.
I'm your host, Josiah. Until next time.